is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Up until this month, California's campfire that leveled the town of Paradise and others was the deadliest wildfire in modern U.S. history with 85 fatalities. We are bracing ourselves as Lahaina's death count could be in the hundreds. So there are lessons to be learned from that disaster. HPR reporter Cassie Ordonio joins us this morning. And Cassie, you're here to talk about education. Yeah, I am. And um, there are a lot of parallels and similarities with the Paradise Unified School District and what they went through in the 2018 campfire and what uh, Maui's Lahaina school uh, schools are going through as well. And so uh, I know that uh, what there was a, um, a board of ed meeting recently where they were talking about issues related to schools that affect the teachers and the students. Yeah, so last week on Thursday, the Board of Education meeting held a general meeting with the updates to the Maui fires, and emotions emotions were high as Lahaina teachers, some of them even flying from Maui to Oahu to plead what they're going through, and a lot of them cited there's a lack of education because the phone lines were down, and um, to be fair, the Department of Education, you know, they're scrambling to try to get all this communication, all this information out to the Lahaina community, but because the fire happened so abruptly and it was so destructive that everyone basically was scattered and phone lines were down. So they have a hotline. They were trying to send emails and trying to communicate in the best way they can, but, you know, not and, and everyone got that communication. Yeah, so it was very frustrating for them. And you reached out to a number of uh, educators and administrators there in Paradise? Yeah, I spoke to a total of maybe six or seven people. Um, I spoke to a superintendent, Tom Taylor. I spoke to someone, uh, a principal at a junior high school in Paradise who taught at an Ace Hardware store once the fire happened. I also talked to a parent whose uh, child was about nine years old when the fire happened, and she had one that was also just in preschool as well. Yeah, so what was the takeaway from talking to these folks? A lot of them had different perspectives and advice they had to bring. So, for example, a lot of them, um, the Paradise Unified School District, they wanted to offer effective communication, making sure all the community members in that school district were together and really hearing their input. And what they found was a lot of folks wanted to return to some type of normalcy. So the administrators would actually go to the parents and the teachers and meet them in person trying to ask them, so what do you need? And others were saying the focusing on the mental and social well-being of students and teachers because like what the Hawaii Department of Education community is going through in Lahaina is that there's kind of this tear between teachers um, feel and students feel like they can't learn while others want to go back to some type of normalcy in a learning environment. And so, um, yeah, what, what did the superintendent say just about, um, you know, things that we should be looking out for? He stressed that learning is the last thing on their mind and it's to make sure the whole entire school community was safe and checking on their emotional and well-being. I first want to say that our thoughts and prayers are with, with the community as we know that it's very devastating. But what is it that we, I wish I knew then that I know now? And I would have to say that really it just takes time to get through it. And there's no, there's no magic formula for the healing process and everybody goes through it at their own pace. That's on a personal level and on a level as far as being a superintendent for a school district, I would say that believe that people will be there to help you and also that when help comes, if it's something that is not helping, it's okay to say no because a lot of times things will come to a school district and is what it does is it creates uh, more work for the staff that are all, that have just lost their homes, that are already burdened with everything else, and trying to keep a school district together. 
So Tom Taylor also said it's important for the school community to come together and figure out what they actually need. And they found out that students wanted to be with their teachers and return to some type of normalcy as long uh, as well as the parents. And that means the Paradise schools had to get creative as, in terms of where can they teach out of. So when the campfire happened in, on November 8th, 2018 four schools burned down or sustained damages paradise elementary school was the school that was completely destroyed it took about a month for students to and teachers to get back to some type of learning setting but the school community was scattered in other communities some teachers and students had to go to chico or durham or gridley some parents would drive an extra 45 minutes to over an hour from wherever they're staying at just to get their kids to school. I spoke with Larry Johnson, who is a principal at Paradise Junior High School. And for the rest of that school year in 2018, they had to teach class out of a hardware store in a mall. He said students who went through this traumatic event will mostly be focusing on surviving. The quicker that the community accepts that they're going to have to get creative with options, the better. What we found very quickly was people wanted to get together. They wanted to gather as a community, whether that was an event at a local school that wasn't even ours, or like what we did in a junior high school and running it out of a hardware store or setting up a high school at an old Facebook building. But whatever we had to do, we very quickly realized we just needed to do things to make sure that they could get together. That's interesting because they wanted to grieve together, I guess, right? Yeah, and Larry Johnson also told me that it took them maybe about over a year or two, depending on the schools in the different communities that they relocated to, it took them about maybe a year or two to return to some type of um, normalcy of learning, like, for example, going back to learning basic English or math and science. Um, but most of it was just focused on um, their emotional and social well-being and it's interesting how scattered the community was because then when you look at the Department of Education, they announced last week a temporary relocation plan to send the Lahaina students to Kihei schools, which is in southern Maui. So it kind of makes sense to where they want to keep the community together. But what happened that was stressed at the Board of Education last week is that teachers and parents were saying, hey, we don't want to be far away from our community in Lahaina. This is all we know. And then also... Um, some things that they could be um, experiencing is the uh, full capacity at other classrooms as well. And so Larry from Paradise also said communication was also difficult, just what the Department of Education here is facing. The school district had to figure out how to be efficient with getting necessary information to people in a timely manner. They ran a phone bank for the high school to locate the students, but because people lost their phones, they found out that wasn't um, sufficient. So. Um, they also had to do um, emails and social media, anything they can to reach um, these folks. Um, there's really no instruction manual to really get through this. But when I spoke with um, a parent, Jessica Bennett, she had two children in paradise. Her daughter was in the third grade uh, when the fire happened in 2018. And she and her children had to move to Gridley, which is about 45 minutes to an hour away from uh, paradise. Um, her daughter was experiencing trauma being ripped away from her family and friends. Um, she said the school community, um, they had to do the best they can, but not many were sensitive to her situation. I think it's important to meet your child where they're at. Yes, children are resilient, but they are also human. They need to be able to process their feelings. They need to be able to take a day off when they need a day off. They need healing time too. So I think don't push them. If they need the day off from school, let them stay home from school. If individual counseling isn't something you necessarily believe in, I think it's important to allow them spaces within groups where they can go process together. So it helps them realize that, you know, they're not alone in these situations and that they have people they can talk to, especially if they have to move to a whole new school district abruptly. Yeah, so it be interesting to see uh, what our Board of Education does, you know, and hopefully we can pick up some of these lessons learned. We're going to see in the coming weeks. All right. Well, thank you so much, Cassie. Thank you. We've been talking to HVR's Cassie Ordonio. Look for her stories on hawaiipublicradio.org.
Civil Beat has been looking at different aspects of the Maui fire. Reporter Marcel Henri joins us today with the take from Hawaiian Electric. Good morning, Marcel. Morning, Catherine. Yeah, so uh, you have the, uh, I guess, position that uh, uh, Hawaiian Electric has taken uh, given the events of the last few weeks. Yeah, so Hawaiian Electric, Electric, excuse me, basically just weighed in with a direct response for the first time to all of the mounting criticism and, and anger and specifically the criticism that they should have you know, had a plan in place and de-energized their, their lines ahead of the fire. They put out a statement late yesterday, which basically uh, suggests that they are not responsible for what happened in Lahaina, and specifically the, the quote-unquote afternoon fire, right, that uh, flared up and, and destroyed Lahaina. What the, you know, there's a, there's a few things that they lay out in their uh, version, their timeline of events, but what they essentially say is that they, they acknowledge that the morning fire that struck early morning where there's tons of, you know, there's video evidence or just video footage that is showing uh, sparking power lines or dangling power lines, I should say, over burning brush. They're saying, yeah, that, that you know, that looks to be caused by our lines, but uh, the, the Maui Fire Department, fire crews, uh, ruled that that had been contained and even extinguished uh, by midday. And kind of the, the big whammy that they delivered, they said that our power lines had actually been de-energized for more than six hours by the time the afternoon fire flared up. Uh, whatever, ha- whatever caused that afternoon fire still being determined. But what we are saying, ECO, Hawaiian Electric, is that our lines actually were de-energized, whether that was, and, and what they don't specify in their uh, in their statement is whether that was intentionally de-energized or just, you know, by the, the windy conditions that were knocking everything down that day. Yeah, and, you know, there's been a lot of speculation, lots of li- lawsuits filed. Uh, we've seen all the video uh, clips that uh, people have been sending in. Uh, but yeah, I guess so. Hawaiian Electric's just trying to set the record straight from where they said that this is what was running through their lines or not. Right, and, and I mean, so far the, their stock has rebounded somewhat today. Um, the the other aspect of this is that they do uh, hold Maui at least Maui County, I should say, um, they uh, at least partially to blame for what happened. They allude to the lawsuit that Maui County filed late last week, and they called it factually inaccurate and irresponsible. And they even sort of alluded to the fact that they might have to countersue to show Maui County's role in all of this is basically how they they kind of phrased it. So uh, you're already seeing, you know, uh, Hawaiian Electric basically – uh, fight back at, at Maui County, which did put out a, a very, you know, I think it, it caught a lot of people by surprise that Maui County moved so fast uh, to file suit against HECO, along with all the other people who have been suing HECO. Yeah, I mean, that really surprised me. And your story talks about how the mayor didn't exactly approve this lawsuit, right? I mean, what's the process? Yeah, so he didn't. Now, typically, the city council, under, you know, the, the rules and regulations of, of that county, would approve any any lawsuit like that where you're requiring help from outside counsel. But this was approved very quickly and without that city council approval using the latest emergency proclamation that the mayor issued in regards to the fire. However, the mayor uh, was recused. He was basically conflicted out due to a family conflict with Hawaiian Electric. So the, the Maui Corporation Council advised the managing editor, or I'm sorry, the, the managing director, we're talking about a county, not a newsroom, uh, the managing director instead is, you know, basically one tier below the mayor. And that is who actually approved this uh, this lawsuit on short notice. And I, I could just say that, like, why did they do this? Well, uh, you know, my, my colleague Nick Gruby was able to ask their corporation counsel on Friday, and they said it's basically because so many of the lawyers around here that are capable 
of of being involved in this. They're already getting sucked up by you know plaintiffs and defendants and even Hawaiian Electric itself. So what they are saying is that's why they filed it so fast is they needed to move based on like lawyer availability. Interesting. Yeah. Well, we'll see what the facts uh, uh, you know bear out and uh, watch this very closely. But thank you so much, Marcel. Thanks, Catherine. That was reporter Marcel Ray with today's reality check. Um, you can check out their coverage at civilbeat.org. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your backyard quiz. The Hawaiian language was an oral language until 1820 when New England missionaries arrived. They developed the Hawaiian alphabet and established schools, which eventually led to nearly 100% literacy across the kingdom. But in 1896, education through the Hawaiian language in both public and private schools was outlawed following a policy of banning Native American languages in the classroom. By the 1980s, fluent Hawaiian speakers had dwindled to a few elders in the tiny population of Ni'ihau. A Hawaiian language-speaking children under the age of 18 numbered less than 50. But during the Hawaiian re- renaissance of the 70s, there was a renewed effort to teach and learn the language. Part of that effort was the establishment of the first Hawaiian language immersion preschool program, Ahapu Nanaleo. Uh, for today's Backyard Quiz, where was the first Ahapu Nanaleo school established? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable H, uh, HPR reusable tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing housing for the homeless, including U.S. Vets, with its Kamaoku Kauhale Tiny Homes community. NairitHawaii.com. Some truckers, it turns out, are not all that hot on their diesel-powered big rigs going electric. It's just not feasible right now. We don't have the technology. We're getting there, just not ready yet. I'm Kai Rizdal. What it might take to get truckers on board with electric. We will have that story for you. The rest of the day's business news and the numbers from Wall Street, of course, next time on Marketplace. Beginning this evening at 6, following All Things Considered. Much like the pandemic, the recent Maui wildfires have brought uncertainty around housing, jobs, recovery, and health. It's a safe bet to say that uncertainty has had an impact on many people's ability to get a good night's sleep. We learned much from the pandemic about the relationship between sleep and health. So how can Maui residents impacted by the fires get better sleep to support their health during this time? HPR Savannah Harriman-Pote spoke to sleep specialist Dr. Valerie Cacho in August of 2022 as part of last year's sleep series. So during the pandemic, my patients in Hawaii who no longer had to commute into town and they lived on one side of the island, actually a couple of them did sleep longer. And it was pretty surprising to me, one gentleman I can think of, he was sleeping just an hour longer, didn't change his activity level, didn't change his diet, but he lost a significant amount of weight. So it's really important how if you get better quality sleep, some of your hormones and metabolism are better controlled, your blood sugar can be better controlled, and your health can actually really improve. What's the relationship between how we sleep and our immune system, our ability to fight off infection? That's really an interesting question. So if you don't get enough sleep, and typically we say less than six hours or even less than seven hours, it's an inflammatory state for our body, right? So we have these proteins called cytokines, which can actually increase, and they promote sleep. So the sleep system and the immune system actually share similar similar genes. 
And so if you have an infection, um, whether it be COVID or even just the regular cold, you need actually more cytokines to help. And when you don't get enough sleep, you have you make less cytokines. And so you can have more illnesses. So it's actually a pretty interesting research study at, at Pittsburgh, University of Pittsburgh, where they took sort of healthy volunteers and they, seen, they monitored how long that they slept for. Um, and then they actually gave them the cold virus by dropping some of the virus into their nose. And then they monitor them for them for a week and they collect their, like, their mucus levels. So it was a pretty sophisticated study. And they found out that the uh, participants in the study who slept less than six hours a night the week prior were four times more likely to catch a cold. So it's pretty neat because actually the intervention was giving someone a virus and seeing what happened. So getting at least seven hours was more protective from immune standpoint, right? You get a stronger immune system. But if you slept less than six hours, pretty high chance of getting, getting a cold four times fold. Four times fold. Okay. Okay. That's compelling. <laughs> 164 volunteers. Yeah. So it, it's a great okay. study. Prior to COVID-19, there was always flu season. There were always other infections that people were at risk for. And I remember the advice I was raised with, you know, wash your hands, vitamin C, those types of things, a good diet, not too much sugar. I don't really recall sleep coming up. Do you find that the concept of, you know, just get enough sleep is novel to people? I think people know it, but they ignore it. You know, almost like, well, we know we should eat more fruits and vegetables. We should have high fiber diets. But, you know... Life is rich of fast foods, sweet foods, yummy tasting foods. And unfortunately, those things aren't as attractive. So just like sleep, right? There's a lot of things that sort of compete for our attention when we're awake, right? And so if you're going to have like entertainment, right, at your fingertips, you know, social media, um, nonstop streaming, right? You know, why would you want to sleep <laughs> almost, right? Because we want to be entertained. We want to have that pleasure just like the pleasure from fruit. Like, why do we want to eat the vegetables if they don't necessarily taste good? We know what's good for our body, but you know, we don't always do what's best for us sometimes up until we have that wake up call. So one of my favorite sayings, you know, we change when we either uh, see the light or feel the burn. So sometimes it takes a little bit of pain from repeatedly getting sick or, you know, some people don't start using um, their CPAP machines for their sleep apnea up until they have a heart attack or stroke. It's like sometimes people need that wake up call, even though they know they should get their health in check. What do we know specifically about the relationship between sleep and COVID-19? Ooh, that's a really good question. Um, if you're not getting an adequate amount of sleep, then potentially you're at increased risk because your immune system isn't working as well. Sleep deprivation as a whole, and I know some of the research on this, is people who tend to be overweight or obese tended to have more severe COVID illnesses, right? And so, you know, people who don't sleep well, you know, because of the hormones of metabolism tend to have higher BMIs. Um, so that could portend to more severe COVID illness. But mm -hmm. I would just it's something on the similar lines, right? If your immune system is compromised from not getting enough quality sleep, then more susceptible um, to getting an infection. And, and early on, there was a small study in China where people took Ambien, right? And so it put you into the sleep. Did they have less rates of COVID? Yeah, but it was also a really small study. So, mm -hmm. and then a lot of people were taking melatonin as sort of a protectant um, during the pandemic. I don't know if we have any randomized controlled trials that say that melatonin was actually protective, but melatonin can be seen as really protective and sort of an anti-inflammatory. It's interesting from the disease model of breast cancer, right? So women who have breast cancer, if they take melatonin, they are less likely at risk to have a secondary event of breast cancer. So it may have some anti-inflammatory, anti-cancer effects to that. Um, but in the prevention of the COVID-19 virus, I don't know if we really have all the data to support that. What's the uh, biggest mystery when it comes to sleep? What do we not know? We don't have a magic switch. So a lot of people in the U.S., I think, want that magic pill. I mean, there are FDA-approved medications, hypnotic agents, that can help someone sleep. But believe me, I've had patients who've been on all of the FDA-approved medication, and they're looking for the next one, the better one, the stronger one. 
So what sleep is, is sleep is when your brain waves slow down. And a lot of people who have insomnia or if you have acute stress or even some, you know, genetic conditions where it can keep you from sleeping, um, sometimes insomnia can run in the family or a lot of mental health conditions, it can be really hard to sleep. And so learning the tools to how to slow down your brain waves, I like to think of sleep like a dimmer. You turn down the stress response and then you turn up the relaxation response. So at least to my knowledge, we don't have that magical switch. I think a lot of people hope it's in cannabis <laughs> because of, that's very widely used CBD, CBN to help improve sleep. But I have patients that has the opposite effect. And for you, where and when do you get the best sleep and where and when do you get the worst sleep? I have two young children. So I, I get the best sleep when they're asleep and they're not crawling into my bed or crying at night. I'm very mindful with my bedroom, protecting my time, um, because I know that those boundaries are really important. I do my best to shut work off at a certain time, stop checking emails, stop having that busy mind interact with my restful state, right? I want to slow down my brainwaves. Yes, I am, you know, no one's a perfect sleeper 100% of the time. So I do admit I am on my phone at the night or in the evening time, but I try my best not to look at the news, look at anything that's too stimulating, anything that could be sort of triggering from an emotional standpoint. I like to keep things light. Um, I like to listen to sort of guided imagery. I'm trained in clinical hypnotherapy, so I can do like self-hypnosis and that helps me relax. So I get my best sleep, A, when I decide to, when I prioritize it, and when I set myself up for being able to have a good night's sleep. That was Dr. Valerie Cacho, an integrative sleep physician with Sleep Life Med on Oahu. She was talking with HPR Savannah Harriman-Pote about sleep and our immune system. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Kathy Wild, author of Wild Ideas, Creativity from the Inside Out. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about using the creative process for personal transformation. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Aloha Group International, presenting Brazilian songstress Bebel Gilberto, live at Hawaii Theater, September 21st. Ticket information at hawaiitheater.com. The West African nation of Niger has been a bright spot of democracy. Now a coup is risking the country's democratic progress and the fight against jihadi groups across the region. Niger is known as the frying pan of West Africa. Anything that happens in Niger affects multiple countries. That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2. Thousands of bottles and hundreds of hands working countless hours have gone into a new large-scale installation titled Changing Oceans, Changing Minds. It was unveiled last Friday at the Volcano Arts Center and was created over the past month by community volunteers working alongside one of New Zealand's leading contemporary artists, George Nuku. The Conversations Lillian Song sat down with the Maori artist to talk about repurposing empty bottles, polystyrene, and plexiglass. When we see the plastic bottle, uh, we are reminded of the presence of two things, and that's light and water. We say waiora, or here in uh, Hawaii, we say waiola, waiola. In Māori and from Aotearoa, we say waiora, wai is water and ora is light. And this is the source of life itself, no? That's what we need for life to exist, light and water. So the plastic bottle is, is conveying that very clearly to me. And for me, you know, the pollution is very sacred, and the plastic bottle is 
proof of divinity. Plastic in the oceans and the environmental issues uh, are at the forefront, but at the same time, they're not. And I say to people, you know, if I could take my eyes and uh, pull my eyes out of my head and put my eyes into your eyes, you could see what I see when I see the plastic, but I cannot do that. So we make all of these wonderful immersive projects uh, together all around the world. Hmm. So walk me through what you're seeing when you see an empty plastic bottle. It's a treasure. Simply that, it's a treasure. And you don't leave treasure lying around on the ground. It's not what you do with treasure. If you do that, someone else will end up, someone else will treasure it and take it away and look after it. You know, people say about the plastic bottle going into the ocean, okay? Oh, you know, the plastic bottle's evil. We need to ban the plastic bottle. The plastic bottle's bad, uh, etc. But we should just remember, hang on a minute, it's not the plastic, the plastic bottle is not throwing itself into the ocean. Who's doing that? It's the human. Exactly. We're doing that. So how do we stop people, how do we stop ourselves from throwing the plastic bottle into the ocean? One way is if I was to say to you, this plastic bottle I'm holding in my hand is worth 10,000 American dollars. Oh, we would change very quickly. We would change in a split second. Our relationship with that plastic bottle would change very quickly because we all know that money is the dominant measurement of value in our world, but it is not the only measurement. And another measurement that is universal to all people or all places is beauty. We all can see the beauty and everything has beauty. So if we take that same material that people are repulsed by or frustrated by, or paralyzed by, and all these reactions that we have, and we turn it into the, and it's just simply a 180 degree turn, and it becomes the most beautiful thing you can imagine, then we cannot take our eyes off it, we go back to it, like we do when we see a beautiful woman or a beautiful man, or we see a bling bling, a rock on somebody's finger, or a Ferrari, or whatever it is that you consider beautiful, we are drawn to it, and we go back to it, time and time again, and this way, we get closer and closer and closer to this so that we are cheek to cheek. And then we can have a real relationship because we do not have a relationship at this moment. It's a kind of a dysfunction to disconnect and it's dangerous, very dangerous. And for you and the crew over at the Volcano Arts Center, including students and community volunteers, you have repurposed, you've collected many empty plastic bottles, you're reusing them in your piece. Just give me scope of scale right now. How many bottles and how many hands have you had touching this work that you are going to be birthing on Friday? Hundreds of hands and thousands of bottles. Working together with, with focus on this common goal and at the same time sharing this, everybody sharing their solitude in the moment and having conversations and laughs and gossiping and all the things that we do, and we're all, it's coming down to how we spend our time, and we're spending our time together. And we're making such beautiful creations towards something greater than ourselves, and in return for all that. Because, you know, people are tired. I've been, we've been pushing ourselves every day for the last three weeks, and we've got a, until Friday, we've got a big push ahead, and people are fatigued, you know, they're, they're tired, but that's okay. Because after the opening, you know, the, the tiredness disappears in time and the, and the satisfaction and the pride remains. And the pride is coming from the satisfaction. And people obtain satisfaction from this and, and, the, and they have the right to be proud. Say, look what we did, look what we made together. Look what we're sharing with everybody else together. Everything is related, everybody is related Every single aspect of our universe exists in relation to. So, yeah. And it's a very Pacific way of looking at things from Pacific people's perspective, that you've got to find ways for everybody to work together and be together because you're living on this rock in the middle of the ocean. can't afford to ignore people or, or disregard people. So it's really about the us-together part that is where I'm coming from and where I'm going. Old people with young people, transcending gender, social status and cultural and economic background, 
and what we're doing together, there's an equality because everybody's important. Because we need everybody. We need everybody for it to happen. This is a way that everybody comes together, you know. We all work together. The schools, the volunteers, the, the people from the Volcano Arts Centre, you know, the team, the people behind the, behind the scenes that are responsible for enabling this to happen. You know, the whole thing. Hmm. And with this, just give me an idea. What is that scope of scale? What will I, as an audience member, if I go to the VAC, what am I stepping into? How large is your piece? Yeah, it's, you're stepping into an undersea temple, and it's completely immersive, but at the same time it has other themes being expressed as well. Themes about compassion, themes about empathy, themes about it's time for us all to move on from the one looking at the other. And instead of that, we stand shoulder to shoulder, side by side, and we regard a joint reflection as reflected in the plastic. can see our joint reflection in the plastic because by spending the time together, time and space, even you and I on this telephone, in part we define each other now because we've spent that time and, and in some cases in that space. You know, there's no going back. You cannot undo that. So um, it's also about reflection. The light enables us to be reflections of each other, and it's reflected in my beautiful plastic. Polystyrene is another thing altogether, you know, that's the polystyrene is, of course, they're genealogically related because they're both coming from the same source, eventually from our mother, deep in our mother. But they're different, they're different uh, branches of the family. And um, yes, and and the poly and I, I I show people how to sculpt the polystyrene using a little knife, a little retractable knife, and people can. I've developed an ideology and a philosophy, and you could even say a a theology, definitely a genealogy, around around this amazing material, polystyrene, styrofoam. You know, it's an amazing material. It's amazing. You learn from that. And George, you are very wonderful about sharing this way of seeing you being who you are, doing what you do. You have this openness, this ability to be silent and to absorb the world around you while many people are so busy. So in closing, what do you want our listeners to take away from this talk with you today? Well, when people come to see what we've created, especially out the young people, you know, for me, that's everything. I, I ask you to remember in your own life, perhaps you had a moment where you experienced something and it gave you like a some sort of charge or some feeling that you knew that your life was never going to be the same again. We all have that experience that, yes, and I would, and I hope, and I, I live for this thing where the, our, the young people come and they have that feeling from seeing what, what we have created and they go home and they sit at their kitchen table and they get some paper and some pencils and scissors or whatever and they create things that I could not imagine. Nothing makes me more excited than that, I tell you. That is, for me, that is the most exciting feeling I could ask for. That was Maori artist George Nuku talking with HPR's Lillian Song. His large-scale installation, Char uh, Changing Oceans, Changing Minds, is an immersive showcase of reused plastic bottles, carved polystyrene and transparent plexiglass. It features upcycled sea creatures made by community volunteers and is on display through September 10th at the Volcano Art Center Niaulani campus. It is time to establish the answer to today's backyard quiz. We looked at Hawaiian immersion schools, which had its beginnings in January in 1982, when a group of Hawaiian educators met to discuss strategies to perpetuate the Hawaiian language. They knew that raising children in an environment where Hawaiian was the common language of interaction was central to its survival. The key would be to reestablish Hawaiian uh, education schools that existed during the monarchy. And the focus would be on nurturing a generation of speakers who would be able to describe 
describe the world through the lens of their language and culture. The Aha Punanaleo is the Hawaiian language immersion preschool program born of those discussions. Punanaleo means nest of voices, and in these centers, the students are fed their native language and culture in ways similar to the way that young chicks are cared for in their nests. The first of these preschools was established in Kekaha, Kauai in August 1984, which is the answer to today's Backyard Quiz. If you have uh, an idea for a, a quiz, you can send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. We had no winners today. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally-based customer care team committed to problem-solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at Mobi.com. Chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, or COPD, can make it feel like you're full of air, but at the same time, can't take a deep breath. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show. We'll hear about the latest efforts to educate and support those with COPD right here in the islands. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show. Support for HPR comes from Osher Lifelong Learning Institute for ages 50 and older with courses such as art, film, history, and gardening. Classes begin September 18th. More by searching O-L-L-I-U-H-M. Monica Medellin is the creator and executive producer of Surf Girls Hawaii. It's an Amazon Prime video four-part documentary series about up-and-coming Native Hawaiian surfers. It features Malohia Kinimaka, Evie Wong, Brianna Cope, Moana Jones-Wong, and Pua DeSoto. Uh, Medellin uh, talked to the conversation Stephanie Han about how she learned to surf as a young girl and her mission to tell stories about women of color in sports. Surf Girls is what I dreamt of watching when I was a little girl. We've seen Blue Crush, which was released in 2002, which was one of my favorite films. And I really identified with Michelle Rodriguez's character, who was another Latina. And I think, you know, what inspired Surf Girls is I felt like it was time for more films to be reflective of the reality of the history of surfing which is that surfing was started by indigenous people of color and Hawaiians. So Surf Girls puts the female native Hawaiian experience at the forefront. And I hope that it inspires more narratives that center these types of stories. What is it that you're thinking might be gained from the presence of native Hawaiian women and a pivot back to understanding the history? When I worked in the surf industry, I noticed that major mainstream platforms were promoting coverage of male surfers and barely any of women and female surfers. And in advertisements to this day, in 2023, it's still common to see a female surfer posing in a bikini on the beach with a male surfer surfing a wave next to that imagery. So I started a personal archive of my favorite female surfers who I thought deserved the spotlight. And through this research and digging and connecting with people in my network, I found the Surf Girls Hawaii cast. These young women are redefining the culture around surfing and elevating women's sports through surfing. And I'm so happy to see these young women be acknowledged for their skill and just to know that the future of our world and the sport is in the hands of this next generation. And what do you feel is different about what they're bringing to the sport? There's something else that's coming with their presence as young Native Hawaiian women. This show is about young women coming of age and 
navigating life and growing into who they are. And it just so happens that they are among the best surfers in the world. And a lot of them are actually at a crossroads of wanting a major surfing career, but not wanting to miss out on all that life has to offer. And there are a lot of personal sacrifices necessary to realize these dreams. And it's actually their close-knit support system and sisterhood that helps them get through it. So I think what makes this cast and these surfers different is the fact that they're actually multifaceted and multidimensional women. What was interesting to me was this idea of everyone supporting each other, but they're all chasing a very similar type of dream. And what that means to be in, let's say, competition with the self, but also in healthy competition with one's peers and elevating an idea of sisterhood. So I thought that was very well done. Thank you. It was really important to have stakes in documentary filmmaking. You need that to help push the story and help your audience root for your characters or the cast or in our case for our surf girls. But what I didn't want was cattiness and drama between the girls to serve as those stakes. The stakes were already prevalent without that. The stakes are actually really high, and they're much higher because these women are native Hawaiian competitive surfers. There's a lot on the line, and this competition and these results are much more than a personal dream. This is uplifting their entire community and native Hawaiian voices in a professional sport that doesn't have much representation. So those stakes are very clear and have always been very clear to me. And I'm so happy that that resonated with people because oftentimes when you see a show that centers a group of women, you see this fabricated drama and mean-spirited you know, energy between the women. And that's exactly the opposite of what Surf Girls Hawaii is. Right. I definitely saw that. Are you of Native Hawaiian descent? And if so, tell me about that journey to surfing. And if not, also tell me about surfing and how you came to then do this series highlighting this group. First of all, I think it's really rare to see somebody like me creating a show and executive producing a show. I'm an indigenous woman of color of Mexican descent, and I identify as indigenous Latina. So that's something very special about this project is that behind the lens, you have women that represent this diversity and are reflective of the stories being told in front of the camera. We share our indigenous identities, and I see myself in them. And I feel like it was easy to relate with me and build trust and create a show that feels authentic and nuanced because of that shared experience. My personal mission is to promote diversity and representation in front of the camera, but also behind the lens. And my work primarily focuses on expanding narratives around women and people of color in sports. I've been an athlete since I was a little girl, but surfing wasn't an obvious choice for me. My mom is an immigrant from Mexico, a single working mom who was a public school teacher and who worked very hard every day to make ends meet. But she wanted me to have every opportunity for success. So she sought out scholarships and sports camps and after school programs and extracurricular activities. And it started with more traditional sports like basketball, and volleyball. Then I moved to gymnastics and then we discovered surfing. And I fell in love immediately and was basically doing headstands on my board by the time I was 12 because of my gymnastics experience. And wow. I feel like I've been a surfer girl ever since. And I think what's interesting is growing up going to surf camp in Los Angeles, I never felt like I belonged. I always felt like an outsider and there was nobody that looked like me in the programs in the camps at the beach. 
I didn't know this history of surfing at the time. And I imagine what my world would have been if Surf Girls Hawaii existed at that point. It wasn't until college that I met another indigenous Latina surfer who shared this deep history of native Hawaiian women leading the lineups and Hawaiian surf history and everything that I didn't know previously. And that changed my whole world. So my mission to make Surf Girls Hawaii started at that point. I don't want any young person to grow up without knowing this rich, deep history that changed my life. And I really hope that Surf Girls Hawaii does that. I pinch myself every day that I made this and can hopefully inspire and influence more stories like this to be told on large-scale platforms. So another thing that's really that was really important to me throughout this process is collaborating with native Hawaiian creatives behind the camera. Our underwater director of photography, Matt Harakuji, is a native Hawaiian waterman and cinematographer. My friend and collaborator, Ha'a Keolana. So I think through these collaborations and this intentional partnership and friendship, it represents that raw, authentic feeling. I think you did a great job. Thank you so much, Monica. Really appreciate the time. Thank you, Stephanie. That was Monica Medellin, the creator and executive producer of Surf Girls Hawaii, an Amazon Prime video four-part documentary series about up-and-coming Native Hawaiian surfers. She was talking to HBR's Stephanie Hahn about surfing, culture, and gender equity. That's it for us today. Tomorrow, we take a closer look at the Red Hill defueling schedule as October is just around the corner. Have you been affected by the Maui wildfires? Call or talk back line 808-792-8217. You can find the Conversation podcast on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you tune in. I'm Catherine Cruz. We'll be back tomorrow with more of the conversation.